Okay, Aaron. So, last week, I teased an episode that's very different than the one we're doing today. Really? <laughs> yeah, the episode I teased last week was Black Veil Brights. You know, mm-hmm. leather, way too much leather, way too much makeup, and uh, we're not afraid to die. It was a, a reference to the end, so or, or in the end. So, we're still doing that Black Veil Brides episode at some point. Probably my next episode that I do for Still Inspired By. But, well... I saw Rise of Skywalker, okay? And it stuck in my head for all the wrong reasons. See, 2019 has been a year. And three different franchises that I've loved and followed and dedicated my adoration and way too much energy to, which is Star Wars, Marvel, and Kingdom Hearts, Mm -hmm. all had various endings this year we had endgame we had kingdom hearts 3 and we had rise of skywalker and well one of them worked and spoiler (laughs) alert that one was endgame so i've had a lot of stuff on my mind about endings especially with this being our new year's episode we're coming to the end of another year and it seemed like a fitting time to break from what we were going to do and do something a little different and so today aaron I want to tell you several stories. I want to break down what it means to have a good ending and why good endings stick with us for so long after every other detail about whatever it was we were watching or doing has slipped away. To do that, I'm going to tell you why I'm still inspired by the endings of Infamous, Red Dead Redemption, Monk, and Yu-Gi-Oh. Yes. Yu-Gi-Oh. Yu-Gi-Oh. In case you couldn't tell by the intro. Spoiler spoilers. <laughs> yeah, spoilers. A little okay. bit, just a bit, just a bit for a lot of them that are all recent in this yeah, year. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so, and all we're going to talk about spoilers about franchises that ended. I think all of these ended last decade. Um. So if you haven't played them yet, you're probably not going to. Um. But towards the end and i'll give a spoiler warning when we do this we are going to discuss endgame and kingdom hearts 3 there will be no spoilers until i explicitly tell you that there are going to be spoilers for those franchises yeah okay so with that let's let's jump into it let's just jump into it let's just jump into it yeah okay so i broke this category down into two different categories because i think by and large the the four things that i picked fall into one of two cases mm-hmm. and the first one is that the protagonist dies at the end. Okay. All right. So for that, we're going to start with Infamous 2. Again, spoiler warning. (laughs) So Infamous 2 is a game about Cole McGrath. Cole McGrath is just your average everyday guy, middle, I I don't think he's middle-aged. I think he's in his like 20s, maybe 30s. Mm -hmm. Um, And totally normal person, not the star of a video game. And then... There is an incident that happens, some kind of massive explosion in New York City, and he gets superpowers. Not New York City, sorry, Empire City, Empire. which is their New York City stand-in. 
<laughs> so over the course of the first game, there's this villain called Kessler, and you fight against Kessler. He starts the game off by killing Cole's girlfriend, and like you, you, you fight him a bunch of times, and you find out at the end of the game. And I'm, I'm not gonna spend so, so real quick. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on these games. Or, or on these various franchises. Because if I were to explain the story of all these things individually, we'd never get to talking about the endings. We would just talk about the plot lines of various right, right, games, right. which I played years ago, so I'm not going to memorize all of them. <laughs> I want to give you enough context so you can contextualize the ending that we're going to discuss. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the key thing about Kessler, and the reason I'm talking about the first game before I get to Infamous 2, which is the real ending I want to talk about, is mm-hmm. at the end of Infamous 1, you find out that Kessler is actually cold. Kessler is Cole from the future. And what you find out is is Kessler so so Cole in Kessler's timeline became a very powerful superhero, well respected, but there was this one villain that he could not defeat or or that he couldn't even fight really called the Beast. And when the Beast showed up, he ran. He took Triss and just said the Beast will do whatever it's going to do. It's not going to kill me. It's not going to kill my girlfriend. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to protect my family. Um, and ultimately what ends up happening is the beast destroys the fucking world and still kills his family. So what Kessler does is Kessler comes back in time to prevent Cole from having that emotional baggage so that Cole can be ready to fight the beast. And so that's why he killed his girlfriend and all that stuff is like, you need to be ready to fight this thing. So it's a weird motivational it is factor, a, but it okay. Is. It's pretty rad and it's set up pretty well in the first game, but it, th- that means literally the entire first game is telling you that the beast which is the villain of infamous 2 mm-hmm. is a huge problem and it's a huge threat and it's a serious thing that you have to fight which is why in infamous 2 in the very first level which actually it's an open world game so i guess it's kind of a level and not really a level mm-hmm. but whatever in the very first opening moments of infamous 2 you get your shit wrecked by the beast and you have to flee to a different city and you have to find a way to kill it oh, so like the this. stakes are super high in infamous 2 we are talking end of the world stakes now, Infamous is a game, and, and the reason it's called Infamous, but it's a superhero game, is it's one of kind of the early pioneers of choice in video games. So it wanted to tell a story where you had moral choices. And in many ways, these choices boil down to black or, very black or white things. It's like, ah, oh, yes, do you save the civilians or do you kill them? It's like, you know, it, it's not the most in-depth choices. <laughs> But the, the game really does tell two different stories. It tells mm-hmm. a good side and a dark side. And it's even more fitting that Cole's powers are electricity because then yep. when you go evil, you're basically a Sith Lord and it's kind of cool. <laughs> um, but, so, so it's important to understand that Infamous, has, Infamous 2 has two very different endings, one good and one bad. But they present a very moral question um, or, or a very interesting moral question. Um, so, and, and I honestly don't remember which ending I went for first. I know which ending I stuck with. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the, the concept behind Infamous 2. So, um, you find out over the course of the game that, um, Cole and thousands of other people like him are what are called conduits. Conduits were people who are able to store the device that exploded and gave them powers. They're able to store it. There are other conduits who will have powers. Like, because this one device exploded, it basically changed the course of human evolution, and now there will be a bunch of superheroes and a bunch of superpowers. You meet some of them um, over the course of Infamous 2, and you start finding new people with new powers. Um, And the thing that did this was called the Ray Sphere. Um, and that's kind of what gave everyone powers. You find out the one that gave Cole his powers isn't the first one. Um, so that boils down to there are other conduits, not just Cole. Um, 
And the Beast is a conduit. He's one of the super-powered beings. He's okay. just a very powerful one driven to kind of end everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that means is the only way to stop him is basically... And, and Infamous 2 is a, a, a quest to find the guy who invented the Ray Spheres to help him find a way to stop the Beast. And he comes up with a way to stop the Beast called the Ray Field Inhibitor, um, which... You don't need to know anything about how it works because basically what it's going to do is the Rayfield inhibitor will kill the beast. But in order to be strong enough to kill the beast, it has to kill all the conduits. So you can't just kill the beast. If the Rayfield inhibitor is activated, it will kill Cole, who you've now spent two games making choices and actively shaping the life of, and who you've, you know Cole is going to have to make a decision to not only kill himself, but every other conduit. So the question becomes, do you save humanity, every human on Earth, and kill the beast? Or do you side with the beast and save the conduits? It's that railroad track moral question kind of thing, just put into a different light. <laughs> yes. And it you you kind of find this you find this out fairly late in the game that it's going to kill everyone. Like you keep thinking there's going to be a way for Cole to survive this. Mm-hmm. And there is a way for Cole to survive this. The way for Cole to survive this is to side with the beast and help him kill everyone and end humanity and build a world for the conduits where the conduits can be themselves. And in fact, like I said, there's two endings for this game. There's a good ending and a bad ending. And the the quote unquote bad ending and the reason I say quote unquote is keep in mind that you've played with Cole and his friends for two games now. And what the game poses to you is, do you save the people you know or the people you don't? Mm-hmm. Because the people you know are all conduits. Every person that you've grown to love over the course of this game is a conduit. They're all going to die. So the good ending is your friends die. The bad ending is you become the beast. Because what you find out is that the beast only has like enough power to kind of end everyone. And then his power will be passed on to the next. Hmm. And the power is going to get passed on to Cole next. Because Cole is the one, like if you take the bad ending, you help the beast win, you save the conduits, and you essentially reshape the world in your image. And in your image means you build a world for the conduits. Which, keep in mind, like over the course of the game, you've seen humans try to oppress conduits. It's essentially like mutants, basically. From the X-Men. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the question is, do I save the people, the, the small number of people that I care about, or do I save all of the innocent lives and the bastards who did this to us? <laughs> like, it's kind of a shitty question, but it's, it, it creates this real moment. This is, I remember the first moment I had in a game where I had to stop and think I could not just immediately, I, I, I couldn't bring myself to just immediately click the good ending. And in fact, the first ending I picked was the bad ending. Mm-hmm. So here's the bad ending. Um, so, in the bad ending, again, you side with the beast, and you help the beast destroy, kind of, all of humanity. The beast, that uses the last of his power, and he passes his power on to Cole. Cole then goes on as the new beast to shape the world for conduits, and you get a world full of conduits. Ultimately, this is not, I think, the canon ending. Um, and the reason I say I think the canon ending is the developers kind of hinted at what the canon ending was. They said, by and large, based on the number of players who picked good versus bad ending overall, most people pick the good ending. So that means, well, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, <laughs> Don't tell the Zelda fan community. <laughs> yeah, which which means that the, the bad ending isn't canon. And in many ways, that makes sense because the bad ending actually isn't as satisfying. Yes, you save Cole, 
but you watch Cole become a monster. And was it really worth saving the person you've spent so much time with to just have them become a monster that you don't recognize? And that's where I think the good ending is so powerful. So here's the good ending. The good ending is you have this long drawn out mission where you have to collect all of the things that you need to activate the Rayfield inhibitor. And it serves as a way for you to get kind of your last moments with Cole and their friends. And then the Rayfield inhibitor activates and Cole and every other conduit and you get a cutscene of this dies. And that includes conduits who haven't been born yet. Everyone dies. Like, there are children who are stillborn. There are little kids that you watch die. Like, every conduit That's dies. fucking dark. It's so dark. But Cole saves humanity. Six billion people, or trillion? How many? It was six, whatever. However many people it is, continue. Six billion. I'm like, it's not trillion, is it? No, whatever. No. Six billion people get to live another day which is very different than the bad ending. But on top of that, Cole dies a hero. And for me, I played the entire game as a hero. So this is the Cole that was in character for me. This was the Cole that I'd known. Like he made the right choice. He saved everyone mm -hmm. except conduits. And the way this ending, the, the final cutscene that you get in this ending is his best friend who is not a conduit. His name is Zeke. Um, his best friend Zeke lays him to rest. He carries his coffin out and he is, Cole asked to be buried at sea, so he's buried at sea. And the thing that I love most and the thing that sticks with me about this cutscene is as Zeke sails off into the distance to drop Cole's coffin in the water, a single lightning bolt strikes the water. Aww. And the reason to me that that's so interesting is my brain was like, oh my God, a lightning bolt struck the water. Cole's powers are lightning. Like maybe he's alive, maybe he's not dead. But everything that the game tells you is he's dead. And we never got another sequel to Infamous. We did get Infamous Second Son, but that tells a different story with different cast of characters that does not follow Cole or anyone Cole knew. Mm -hmm. um, and you're left with this question. You're, the, the question you're left with is, is Cole really dead? But it also doesn't matter, does it? Because Cole did what he needed to do. He saved the world. He's, he's immortalized as a hero. And he saved, like, he saved everyone. Mm-hmm. That's how Infamous ends. And that lightning bolt image has stuck with me forever. <laughs> because when I started thinking about this, it's one of the first games that I thought of. Now, I don't want to spend too much time about saying why I think this works so well. We're going to do that at the end after we talked about all of them. So let's jump into the next ending I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Here's the next ending I want to talk about in this category of the protagonist dies at the end. Okay. And that's Red Dead Redemption. Yes. So. If you haven't played Red Dead Redemption, this ending is consistently ranked among like the best endings in video games of all time. This Every is, list that I found put it at number one or number two. This is the first one, as I believe the second one is actually a prequel. Yes. So. <laughs> and the second one is a prequel. And that was something that I struggled with is, does it count if a series didn't really end after it? And I don't think so, because Infamous Second Son isn't a direct sequel to Infamous 2, and Red Dead Redemption 2 is a prequel to Red mm -hmm. Dead Redemption. And I think that's important. Um, because we're going to talk about that as well when we talk about other stuff later, is it's important to know when to move on. And I think Red Dead Redemption is one of those games that knew it was time to move on. Mm -hmm. So here's how Red Dead Redemption works. So first off, the game as a whole follows John Marston. He's your protagonist, um, and he was a former gang member, and he is tasked essentially by the government of, like, you're going to go kill all your gang members. And if you don't want us to kill your family, you're going to do this for us. In many ways, it's John Marston's journey to put his past to rest. Mm -hmm. He's trying to 
like lay down all the bad things he's done, redeem himself, and move on so he can finally have a normal life. And in fact, at the start of the final cutscene, John Marston seems to have done that. And for context, by the way, if you don't know what Red Dead Redemption is, it's a Western, basically. It's a very good uh, Western it's game, It's a actually. very good Western. Styled Great a la, game. I mean, it's done by Rockstar, a la GTA, except it's Old yeah. West. <laughs> yeah, imagine like Grand Theft Auto set in the Wild West, but it tells a really compelling story. It tells a better story than any GTA has ever seen. Absolutely. <laughs> and it tells a very morally gray story, because what John Marston is doing is bad, but he's doing it to bad people <laughs> like he's killing bandits and outlaws and he's doing it at the request of the government to put these criminals down and he's doing it because he's a former member of this gang he's one of the only criminals he's a wanted man he's a bad guy but he's also kind of the only one who can do it mm -hmm. um and it's also there's a lot going for Red Dead Redemption. I think it is a game that you must play if you haven't. Um, it, it tells the story of a dying West because it's set right when the Wild West is going to end. Um, and when, you know, you start to see more like society and high culture move in. Um, and like I said, though, it really is a journey about one man grappling with his past and trying to put it to rest. And at the end of this, for, at the start of the, the ending cutscene, John Marston has done just that. Every member of his gang is dead. Um, he's cleared his name, quote unquote, like he's not a wanted man anymore, so you think. Um, and he's back with his family at his farmstead. In fact, you get several missions where you are just with your son doing dadly things and <laughs> living a normal life. And then, well, then the posse rolls up because here is how Red Dead Redemption ends. Um, the man who hired John Marston to hunt down all of his gang members really did mean it when he said this gang was going to die. He meant to kill John Marston. And now that John Marston has killed everyone else in the gang, there's only one gang member left and all 20 of these cowboys are here to kill John Marston. And the last thing that you get, the very last thing you get to do as John Marston is you get to go into this Deadeye scene. And I thought, and I tried repeatedly, that if you were fast enough and you were good enough, you could save John Marston. So here's Deadeye. Deadeye is a mechanic, if you've ever played Fallout, it's like Vats, where you get to essentially go into slow motion and choose your targets. And you can target as many things as you want as you have bullets in your gun. And the problem is there are more cowboys than any single gun has bullets to kill. Mm -hmm. And if any one of them survives, John Marston dies. Because again, there's like 20 or 30 cowboys in this bossy and they're all aiming their guns directly at John Marston. And so, Red Dead Redemption ends with the protagonist you have spent all of this time playing getting shot to death, murdered in much the same way that you murdered a bunch of other bad guys, and he just dies, and he's buried, and he's gone. That is how it ends. Credit roll. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, I, like I said, I tried so many times to save John because I refused to believe that John Marston would die. Because I learned about this character, I learned about his struggles, I watched as he tried to become a better man than he had been in the past, I watched as he tried to be there for his family, and I could not stomach the idea that his son would grow up without a dad that I had worked so damn hard to make morally correct. <laughs> but you don't get that. He's dead. You do get one after credits scene, if you will. See, Red Dead Redemption rolls the credits when John Marston dies, because that is the end of John Marston's story. But it's an open world game. There's conceivably things that you might want to go back and do. You may want to go play multiplayer or do some challenges or whatever. And so 
Somebody has to keep being the protagonist after John is dead. Now, normally, games, for example, like Zelda, um, did get around this by just having you wake up right before you fought the final boss. Just perpetually right before the final battle kind of thing. Yep, like Zelda games do this constantly. Of uh, You'll do the final battle, and instead of dealing with the aftermath of the final battle in the world, you'll just go back to right before the final battle. And mm -hmm. in many ways, to me, that cheapens the experience because the story ended, and the story ended for you, but you can still go back to visit this world, but it's stuck in this perpetual state of almost ending, this perpetual climax. Red Dead Redemption is not. Because Red Dead Redemption, after the credits, wakes up 10 years later. Guess who you're controlling? Probably his son. His son, Jack Marston. And here's the thing. When you wake up as the son, and you, you know, he, it starts with he's visiting his father's grave at the old family farmstead. He gets on a horse. You know, you've got all your guns back. He's got his father's arsenal, essentially. You get a mission. Because Jack has a quest. He wants vengeance. Of course. And Red Dead Redemption 2's final scene is you track down the man who hired John Marston, the man who convinced him to kill his former gang members and then betrayed him at the end, and you get to shoot him. Two? No, Red Dead Redemption 1. You said two. <laughs> this is how Red Dead Redemption 1 ends. I have no idea how 2 ends. I've never played it. 2 is a prequel. Whatever. Right. <laughs> Red Dead Redemption 1 ends with Jack Marston killing the man who betrayed John Marston. Except... It really doesn't feel satisfying because the guy is like a 90-year-old at this point. He can barely hold a gun. He doesn't even really fight you. And it is literally as simple as a single shot from your worst weapon will kill this guy. That is how Red Dead Redemption ends. And it ends in such a way that like permanently tears at your heartstrings. Mm -hmm. John Marston technically got what he deserved. He was an evil man. Um, but he was also a flawed man. He was a good man by the end of the game. You think he's redeemed himself by the way you played the game, but he still dies. And even when you get vengeance for him, it's in a pathetic, cowardly way where you kill an old, dying man. Is that really worth it? And that is the question that Red Dead Redemption leaves you with. And it is something that just rips at your heart if you've played that game. It's fabulous. It leaves you with so many questions. And it's arguably one of the best video game endings of all time. It'll almost always pop up on a top 10 list, and no matter where you got it. <laughs> okay, so that's the first category. The first category is, again, the protagonist dies at the end. Here's a category that at first feels fundamentally different, and it's my second category. And this one is the happy ending. You know, the hero gets what they wanted. They survive, they live, they move on. Everyone around them moves on and we go to our happier places. And for this, we're gonna start with Monk. Okay, have you ever heard of Monk? I think I've watched, no, I'm thinking Psych. Yes, I've heard of Monk, I haven't watched it. Okay, so Monk is a detective, like police procedural show. Mm -hmm. um, the premise behind Monk is there is this character, his name is Monk, he's who we follow. Um, and he used to be a police officer. He used to be a detective, one of the best. Think like, you know, your classic, really good at doing detective work, like Columbo or um, the main character from Psych, right? Like, pick your poison, hyper aware, super good at doing detective work, that kind of like your, your traditional police procedural star. But there's a twist. See, remember how I said he used to be a cop? He was a cop up until his wife was murdered in a car bombing. And when his wife dies, it causes him to have a nervous breakdown. 
he basically becomes an agoraphobic hypochondriac stuck in his house like he can't go anywhere he's terrified of everything he has a nervous breakdown Mm -hmm. and it takes him three and a half years just to finally step outside his apartment for the first time um that is where monk starts monk starts with we follow a character who is damaged who's broken and who is grappling with the feeling that he never saved the one person he should have been able to save, which was his wife. He's never able to solve that murder. And we go eight seasons where he thinks that there is something going on behind his wife's murder, but he can't prove it. He can't solve it. He thinks there's a conspiracy, but the detective who can solve anything can't solve it. The final two episodes of Monk, again, it's eight, eight, eight seasons. I highly recommend watching it. Monk is a fabulous character. It's a fun show. It's a funny show, um, and it's highly entertaining. And, and it's important to keep in mind, by the way, when we go into this, who Monk is as a character. Because the ending of Monk, I guess, isn't that happy. Like, his wife is still dead, but I guess now he knows who did it, because the final two episodes are him solving the murder. Mm-hmm. But the final scene really stands out to me, because this is... And, and to me, this scene is, is masterful for reasons other than just being a good way to end the series. Because at first, you look at this scene, and, and the scene is just Monk shows up at a crime scene with his um, nurse. So he had a nurse who was helping him deal with all of his psychological traumas and all that stuff. And it's just like any other day. The final scene of this is he solved his, his wife's murder, um, and he just goes back to work the next day. He's got another crime to solve. It looks like nothing's changed. Except remember what I said earlier, this monk had a, a, a psychological or, or like a nervous breakdown. And that meant that like he was unwilling to change his patterns. He was unwilling to go outside. He wore the same suit constantly. He wore the same tie constantly. He never changed his hair. He never did anything differently because it terrified him. And in the final episode of Monk, this thing that looks like any other day, he's still acting just like he always did. He shows up wearing a black suit with a blue tie, which is completely different from anything he's ever worn before. And again, it's an ending where he, he solves his wife's murder, the one thing he's been trying to solve, and he shows up to work the next day just like any other day, but it's not like any other day before it. And that is how it ends. We don't get any other explanation from the audience of what happens to Monk, but we see his costume change, <laughs> quote unquote costume change. Yeah. And we as an audience know he's moved on, he's healed. Right? He's moving in the right direction for the first time in eight seasons. There's nothing more satisfying than that kind of ending. That sounds so sweet. It's so <laughs> sweet. It's fabulous. It's a fabulous way to end a series. And that scene has stuck with me for ages because it is such a good way to do a send-off for a character. Um, and it's, it's just, again, it is just visual. It takes advantage of the fact that you are watching a TV show and you can notice these details. And it just gives you the details and expects you to connect the dots. And I love that. It's such a great way to end a show. Okay, so that's Monk. That's the category of happy ending. Here's another happy ending. Yu-Gi-Oh. All right. I stopped watching after, like, the Funimation <laughs> where they're pointing fingers and, yeah. Yeah. This one, let's, so let's be clear here. We're talking about the original series, so the one that follows Yugi and Kaiba and Yami Yugi and all that stuff. We're talking about that specifically. None of the spinoffs. I don't, I've never watched Yu-Gi-Oh! GX or anything later. Nor None of the abridged. <laughs> we're not talking about the abridged. The abridged never ended. Um, we're talking about the original series. And to be clear, I watched the English dub. So take with that what you will. But 
this is actually one of the few, I think one of like four anime I've gone back to rewatch. Um, it, Yu-Gi-Oh! holds that special place of like kill a kill for me of things I've deemed worth going back to rewatch. <laughs> um, and when I rewatched Yu-Gi-Oh! I rewatched all of it, including the filler arcs and all that stuff, but I don't want to deal with a lot of that. So for anyone unfamiliar with Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu-Gi-Oh! is a show about children's card games. Yes. <laughs> um, which that's a Yu-Gi-Oh! abridged reference. Anyway, um, the show follows Yugi, and um, he gets this thing called a Millennium Puzzle, which has the spirit of a dead pharaoh, is I think what we're told. He's in an the... Egyptian god. No, dead pharaoh, not a god. Okay, fair. Oh. Pharaoh. <laughs> yep, and the, like, basically, again, like, it's it's all about a card game, and it's all framed from a card game. So, so uh, if you've ever heard of the trading card game Yu-Gi-Oh!, this is the anime that goes with it. Um, although the anime is based off the manga and the manga spawned the anime and the anime spawned the card game. And then it yeah. was all in that era of Pokemon where they're like, well, fuck, they're selling cards at an insane rate. Better sell cards too. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Like Yu-Gi-Oh! The card game is a tie in to Yu-Gi-Oh! The anime. Oh, the nineties. Okay. You were but... almost, you were literally 30 years ago starting today. Oh my God. <laughs> Good Lord. Shut up. I'm almost 30 and I can feel it. Ah! Okay. So, um, Yu-Gi-Oh! the anime. Um, I think there's five or six seasons total. I forget exactly how many there are. Um, and most of them follow a similar arc. They're all usually about some tournament in the card game, and Yu-Gi tries to win it, and so on and so forth. The, the key thing you need to understand about this, if you're completely unfamiliar with Yu-Gi-Oh!, is Yu-Gi as a character, and he's like a high schooler who's fairly unconfident of himself, and he gets the Millennium Puzzle, like I said. Which, again, a, the spirit of a dead pharaoh inhabits this puzzle. And that pharaoh is the king of games. He's, like, good at every game he will ever play, including Yu-Gi-Oh! Or, which in the show is called Duel Monsters. He's a god at Duel Monsters. He can manipulate luck, basically. Like, he always has the right card. He always has the right strategy. He's a badass. Yu-Gi is decidedly not a badass. Which is why when they get into duels... Yugi gets possessed by the pharaoh, and you can tell this because Yugi's voice gets deeper and he gets taller, and no one in the show notices. <laughs> it's as if it's as if the anime Ash Ketchum occasionally gets possessed by the video game Red. Yep, yep, <laughs> except, that's a good way to put it. Except the pharaoh yeah. will talk. Yeah, you can literally watch the first episode of Yu-Gi-Oh, and you will understand the premise of the rest of the series. <laughs> the entire series. Yeah. So, the reason I want to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh, though, is the ending to Yu-Gi-Oh is fabulous. So, here's how Yu-Gi-Oh! ends if you've never seen it. And in fact, I hadn't seen it originally until I rewatched the series. The, the last two seasons, uh, or the last season and then the last two episodes. So the last two episodes are the real ending. That's what we're going to be focusing our time on. But it's important to understand the build-up. So the build-up here is, and, and Yu-Gi-Oh! is a world full of magic and monsters, and all that magic ties back to ancient Egypt. Again, you have the pharaoh who inhabits the puzzle. There's other millennium items that have these weird powers and you can send people to like the shadow realm and 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 various other things so there's a bunch of magic and you often find out that the dual monsters themselves are actual monsters that inhabit the cards like you're literally playing a game that was designed to be played as like to win wars in this setting yeah um so there's a lot of lore questions that we don't get answered for ages it's often just kind of in the background posing these problems like stuff happens and you're like why is this going on why are there these millennium items why is there magic the last season aims to answer those questions. 
The last season is about trying to finally figure out who the pharaoh that inhabits, which up to this point we've called Yami. So you have Yugi and Yami Yugi, which is Yugi when he's possessed by the pharaoh. Is Yami Yummy? Oh my god, it is not spelled like that, and <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, um, again, when... So, so we've had these questions about the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh doesn't remember anything about his past. He doesn't understand who he is or how he got trapped in this puzzle or anything like that. Um, and he doesn't understand why he looks like Yugi or Yugi looks like him, like none of that. They don't understand any of that and they're not gonna explain it either until you get to the last season when we finally get the explanations. We finally find out the Pharaoh's real name. His name is Atem, A-T-E-M. Um, we find out you know, his past, we find out why like that he was always fated to duel Kaiba and like Kaiba was also a person in this past and they were kind of constantly battling and enemies and they're you know there's a lot of questions answered about the magic and how this works and ultimately what we find out at the end of the series is or at the end of this season is that like Atem has done everything he needed to do to move on remember he's a ghost right like he he wants to move on to the afterlife all of his friends are dead and now he has all of his memories and he knows what he did and he's accomplished his purpose. He's saved the world, he's helped, you know, the people he needed to help, he's kind of prevented the end times, right? Like that sort of thing. And again, now he knows who he is. He he has all those memories back, which we've spent like five seasons up to this point with the Pharaoh having no idea who he is or what. And now just the fact that he has a name is a huge revelation along with everything else we learned in this season. He comes from Timmy Village. <laughs> <laughs> So we get to the end of that season where we have all these questions answered and we find out there's one more thing that the Pharaoh has to do to pass on. Also in this season, it's important to note, we get a lot of closure with other characters as well. Kaiba gets a lot of closure. We get a lot of closure with kind of Yugi's accompanies cast, but there's one character who never gets closure in this season till the very end. And that's Yugi himself. Because Yugi, this entire time, has been so focused on helping the Pharaoh find out who he is, he hasn't had a chance to kind of close any of his own personal questions, which is why the final two seasons are so satisfying, or the final two episodes. The final two episodes, and it, it might actually be more episodes than this, I don't remember how many it is total, but see, remember how I said there was one more thing the Pharaoh has to do? In order for the Pharaoh to move on, he has to pass on his role as king of games to someone else. He has to lose, and he doesn't like to lose. <laughs> so. There's only one person who's battled alongside him this whole time, who's learned all of his te techniques and has a chance in hell of beating him, and that's Yugi. So the final few episodes are a duel between Yami, or Atem, and Yugi. That sounds cool, I wanna watch this it's, now. <laughs> it's fabulous, because the thing that it does is, first off, it Atem has to let go, right? He has to move on. But he was always there when Yugi needed him. He was always Yugi's backup. Yugi is not a strong person, but now he has to prove that he is. And these last two episodes are Yugi proving to Atem that it's okay for you to go. You can move on. You can leave this world. I'm strong now. I can go without you. And that message is fabulous. Because technically Atem dies at the end, but the protagonist this whole time is Yugi, right? Like it's not the Pharaoh. And the story that we get over the course of five episodes, and I am surprised that I am tearing up at this, but God damn it, this was a piece <laughs> of my childhood. The story that we get at the end is a story of Yugi learning how to fend for himself, of Yugi learning how to finally be a strong person. And at the final, very end of the series, he gets to prove that he is a strong person to the person who made him strong. Aww. That is the end of the series. 
it is such a time we get closure with all the characters we get closure with yugi and we know when when the pharaoh moves on to his afterlife that yugi is going to be okay and that's all that we needed to know as an audience it's adorable it's adorable it's happy it's beautiful and i love it it's such a great way to end a series and it is why Yu-Gi-Oh sticks in my head to this day aside from the fact that it might get its own inspired by episode because it's the reason i play like magic and other really? card games as well yeah like Yu-Gi-Oh is my first card game but the ending of the anime is powerful it's fabulous it's worth it the anime itself isn't that long i would recommend go watching it um and then you'll get all the feels and the closure when you watch that final battle because it it means a lot. Okay. So, we've come a long way. I've told you a lot of endings. We're like 34 minutes in, and we haven't even talked about <laughs> the kind of thing that I want to talk about, which is what is the anatomy of a good ending? All of these I've identified as good endings, but like I said, they, they are in two categories that seem very different. Infamous and Red Dead Redemption give us endings where we're not super happy. We watch our hero die. We watch their friends die. We watch the world move on and we are left with questions. In Infamous 2, the question we are left with is, is Cold truly dead? Are the conduits truly gone? Are we ever gonna see more like superheroes in that world? Like, is everything we, we know real of, of what happened? Like we're left with those kinds of questions. And in Red Dead Redemption, we're left with the question of, did John Marston get what he deserved? Was he supposed to die? Was he truly a good character or was he just a good character because we spent so much time with him? Um, is Jack Marston's vengeance closure? It doesn't feel like closure. Why doesn't it feel like closure? Why do I have to question this? Those are the questions that Red Dead Redemption 2, or sorry, Red Dead Redemption and um, Infamous 2 leave us with. And they're not comfortable questions. They're not happy questions. We aren't happy at the end of those games, or at least I wasn't. But then we have the complete opposite. We have Monk, we have Yu-Gi-Oh, where these characters that we've followed for so long get their happy endings, they get their goals achieved, they get to move on with their lives, and we get to see that moved on, and we don't have any more questions. And I think that brings us to, to me, what makes all of these good endings? And I think that comes to our first bit, which is good endings wrap up loose ends, right? And, and I think this is, this is critical, is we don't have any more questions, right? Like, even in, in Red Dead Redemption, we know what happened to John, and that's the end. And yes, there are questions morally, and, and those questions are asked, but John's journey is over. There's nothing to go back to. There's nothing else to tell. I mean, I guess there is because we got a prequel and we had his history. But like from that arc, we saw it all with John. We do see the same thing with Cole. Cole spends two games trying to become the hero. And finally, at the end, he's the hero who saved everyone. Mm -hmm. We see the same thing with, with Atem and Yugi. We see Yugi get to move on and we see Monk get to move on. We don't have any more questions about the characters themselves because their arcs are complete. There's a full stop to their there sentence. Is. And I think it's, it's, it's this idea. This is what makes ending satisfying. There, there's two parts to it. There's first feeling like we saw the entire arc. We saw everything we needed to see. We saw the full story. The other part is it has to feel earned. You've got to earn your ending. When John Marston dies, we should have known the entire time you're playing the game. It came as a shock to me that he died. But looking back on it, even from the moment after the credits started rolling, looking back on it, you knew it was coming. Because the person he was working for was a slimy, dirty rat. 
You knew he was going to betray you. You knew there was no other way for John Marston's story to end because he was a bad guy doing bad things to bad people. Where else is this story going to go? <laughs> it's not going to end happy. With Infamous 2, the ending we get is the ultimate hero's sacrifice. Cole died, but he died being a hero. And he died saving everyone. And again, over the course of two games, we shaped this character to be the hero he needed to be in that moment. And the same is true with Yugi. We see five seasons where he's incapable of fending for himself. He always needs Atem's help. And then at the end, he proves to Atem, I've learned what you've taught me. I'm ready to move on, and therefore you can move on. And then finally with Monk, we literally see his transformation. We see him start to become the person he used to be. And all of those are earned. Every little detail that we saw leading up to it in all of the seasons beforehand or all of the moments beforehand in the video games led to that moment. It doesn't feel out of place. To me, those are the, the biggest ones. I also think there's one other thing, which is really good endings aren't afraid to close the door and leave it shut. I want to take a quick aside here. One of my favorite shows that I'm not going to not going to do an episode on because it's been way too long and there's probably some stuff going back on it that I won't like anymore, but there was just a good part of my college age entertainment was just watching Scrubs. And Scrubs is a very nice show. You follow an ensemble of characters around John Dorian and it has as production-wise nine seasons. And I say production-wise because canonically it's eight. And the eighth season does exactly everything you've just said here. It wraps everything up. The person that you want them to, the couple you want to get together gets together. Then the other couples that are in there get together. And then the one person who's in a dealing with this thing is get, it, literally every single thing is wrapped up. The music makes you cry. It's perfect and wonderful. And the producer, when asked why they're ending it at eight seasons, says, I want every single thing to be tied up so you don't have any questions you just know they're living their life and happy and then the uh fox office was like hey that made a lot of money go make us another scrubs show yeah <laughs> and fucked everything up that way that kind of happened with how i met your mother as well yeah the, we got a season where the show ends with you figuring out how he met their mother, yeah. which is the whole point of the show. And then we got an unnecessary extra season that I've really yeah. ruined it. And, and it's that exact anatomy of you have all these questions that are presented. And you it's not just that they're presented. It's that they have time to kind of sink in and yeah. grow with you. And then there's a wrap-up. And whatever that wrap-up is, it's got to feel real. And I feel like a lot of those are some of the best examples of being earned real conclusions. Yep. And I think, again, like that is, because I think you can have a conclusion that wraps up the loose ends. And I think it's important to point out, right, by the way, right, the wrapping up loose ends doesn't mean every question is answered. Mm -hmm. It means the important questions are answered. Mm -hmm. Because, right, like when you think about the moral connotations of what Jack Marston does, that is a question left unanswered by the ending. Mm -hmm. But that's okay, because that is us grappling with what happened. In many ways, that's us dealing with grief at the character that we lost. <laughs> with Infamous 2, the question of, is that the true end of superheroes? Are they truly going to leave Cole dead? They leave it kind of up in the air, but that's okay, because if they never change anything, we know the conclusion. And maybe they come back and do something else. They won't. Spoiler alert, we got Infamous Second Son, and it didn't star Cole, and they're never going to bring Cole back, I don't <laughs> think. Um, but... 
they're leaving you with questions about the world that aren't questions about the character's journey. Their mm -hmm. journey is at an end, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But all of that good work of making an earned ending and then making an ending that um, feels like, like wraps up the loose ends can be undone if you aren't willing to stick with it. Yep. So with that, and, and I want to point out, by the way, I, I actually, each of these movies kind of exemplifies something about what I just said, those three points. The one about questions answered falls to Rise of the Skywalker. I'm not going to, or Rise of Skywalker, or whatever. I'm not going to talk about the plot of that movie, but the problems with that movie tie into the fact that it has so many plot holes and it's so rushed and introduces so many problems that you are left with so many questions at the end of that movie and you don't feel like you got a final answer, even though this is the end. And so we're not going to talk about that, but we are going to talk about the other two because the last thing I want to do here is I want to go back to what I started this with. I want to go back to Endgame and Kingdom Hearts 3. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up this conversation, let's bring it back to, to, again, what inspired it, right? I want to talk about why, Avenger Endgame's, why Avengers Endgame's ending worked. That's hard to say. <laughs> and why Kingdom Hearts 3 didn't. So... Again, Rise of Skywalker is a huge reason we're talking about this today. It's probably the single biggest inspiration, quote-unquote, behind this episode. <laughs> but since it only came out a week and a half ago, we are not going to talk about it here. Correct. Um, and honestly, the least bad part about that movie is its ending. So we're just not going to go into that. The, the, the problems with yeah. that movie are literal, technical, like, you shouldn't have written the script like this kind of problems. There was just a whole bunch of production issues yep. we're not going to go into. Yep. So... With that being said, let's talk about Endgame and Kingdom Hearts 3. Spoilers ahead. If you don't want either of those spoiled, you can realistically turn off the podcast here. I made my points about what makes a good ending, and now we're just going to kind of apply those points to the movies that we have. So feel free to turn this off here. You've kind of heard the main it. bulk of the message, especially if you haven't seen Endgame or played through Kingdom Hearts 3. If you don't care about those spoilers, stick around. I'm going to cover what the endings are. If you haven't seen Endgame, go fucking watch all of Marvel and then watch Endgame because, yeah. oh my God, it's so worth it. <laughs> It is so worth it. It is It is some of the best movies. Like, yeah, it's like 50 hours of movies at this point, but every single hour is worth it. Yep. Okay. Well, except maybe Guardians of the Galaxy 2. You can skip that one. All right, anyway. And Thor 2. Oh, and Thor 2. <laughs> yeah, you can skip Thor 2. All right, so... What I really want to do here, by the way, is there's a lot to talk about in Endgame and, and Iron... or Endgame and Kingdom Hearts... But I really want to draw parallels between the two like protagonists of the movie. And again, you're, you might look at Endgame and say, there are so many protagonists in this. What do you mean protagonist? Mm -hmm. The protagonist of Endgame is Iron Man. Most of Marvel's um, first 10 years of movies has been Iron Man's story. And so we're, what we're going to do is we're going to compare Iron Man's ending to Sora's ending. Because mm -hmm. they really are kind of the comparison. I think you can draw a lot of parallels. I there. think Tony Stark appears in more Marvel <laughs> shows than literally any other character in the entire series because he makes so many side appearances in so many other movies. Yeah, he so. does. <laughs> this is Iron Man's arc. <laughs> so let's start with Iron Man's arc. And specifically, we'll cover what happens in Endgame. I'm not going to go over all of Iron Man's arc. I kind of covered that in our Marvel Cinematic Universe episode. I do want to cover what happens in Endgame. The questions that we started Iron Man with at, at over 10 years were when we first meet Iron Man, he is not anywhere close to a hero. He's honestly kind of a villain. Um, he's not reliable. He can't keep promises. He doesn't 
like there's no way he could ever possibly be a good parent or anything like that like and above all like i said he's not a hero that's where we meet iron man literally 10 years of movies ago in iron man one god over the course of an entire decade of movies we watch iron man grow as a person the first thing he solves is he solves the problem of can i be a hero he becomes a hero over the course of the first movie and the second movie and the third movie in the iron man series as well as the avengers movies he saves the world repeatedly he almost sacrifices himself in the first avengers where he carries by the way spoilers for the first avengers if you haven't seen that literally 10 years ago we're also spoiling endgame so i guess like get your shit together (laughs) um anyways um so in the first avengers he carries a nuclear missile into space and if it hadn't been for the portal for him falling at like the exact right time like it is pure sheer luck that he survived that um and he like he almost sacrificed himself we have watched him become a hero the next question he has to answer is can he become reliable can he be trusted and he earns that trust over the course of movies he finally you know commits to pepper and and makes a relationship with her he finally is there and supportive of of all of his teammates on the avengers and he's doing what he needs to do to again earn their trust and the last one is can he be responsible can in this case Endgame is the one that answers that. Because the premise of Endgame, and, and we see it in Infinity War, is Pepper is kind of annoyed with, with Tony. He keeps putting his life in danger to save other people, and it's endangering the family. Not even just that. Age of Ultron was caused by his anxiety of wanting to protect everybody, and because he feels like, at that movie, he he's not as responsible as he wants to be. Yeah. And in many ways in Endgame, because we start Endgame after Infinity War and Thanos snapped, um, we start Endgame with Iron Man having moved on. He's not a hero anymore, right? Like, technically, we start with him in space, but then we jump five years, and he's got a family. He's no longer Iron Man. He's a dad. He's a dad. He's got a kid, and and he moves on. And, And Endgame is him grappling with, can I really go back to save the world and risk my daughter's life? I don't want to lose my daughter. I don't want my daughter to lose me. I want to be there for her, and that means not running off to save the world. But ultimately, we all know where this has to go. Iron Man can save the world, and he does. He invents a time machine. They go back and get the Infinity Stones, and they bring everyone back. But they almost lose it again, because the final moments of Endgame um, are Thanos almost gets the Infinity Stones a second time. He almost snaps again and ends the world. And um, he doesn't because Iron Man makes a snap decision. Tony Stark runs a snap decision. decision. (laughs) (laughs) Tony Stark is able to like surprise Thanos and get the stones away from him using his nanotech. It's a rad fucking scene. It really is. Like if you haven't seen it, oh my God, go watch it. Just watch that scene alone. Um, He gets the stones away from Thanos. And right as Thanos thinks he's won, he snaps, he says his famous line of, I am inevitable. And the snap doesn't happen because Tony Stark got the stones from him. And Tony Stark looks at him and says, I am Iron Man, and snaps. And it's way more dramatic and way better in the movie. But he, again, he snaps his fingers with the Infinity Stone and kills all of Thanos' army and Thanos himself. And he saves the world. Saves the universe, literally. Saves the universe. He saves literally 50% of life everywhere. That is a huge scope of stuff to save. <laughs> but above all, he got 
his moment to not only save the world, but to make the decision for the greater good. And best of all, we get closure because here's what happens after he snaps. First off, it's been set up this entire time that the Infinity Stones will kill a normal person. That's been through several movies, including this one. We've seen it repeatedly. One. We saw it in Guardians of the Galaxy, where Star-Lord almost died um, holding the stone, and the only reason he didn't is because he's half of a god, basically. Mm-hmm. Hulk form using the gauntlet literally destroys his arm. Yep, and that's like... Hulk. Hulk is way stronger than Iron Man, and Iron Man is the one who finally snaps. When he snaps, we all know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. because there's no way it it can't happen, mm-hmm. right? Like, he used the stones and he's not powerful enough to survive He's that. a human. But we also get a moment of closure because remember what I said, is he responsible? And you might look at this and I, I think there's a camp that could look at Tony's decision to go back and be a hero and save the world as irresponsible because he doesn't, he, he, he means, it means that his family is going to grow up without him. His daughter's going to grow up and not have a father, but that's kind of the only question we're left with, right? Because he's become a hero, he's become reliable, he's saved the world, he's done the thing that he always said he was trying to do, which is protect everyone. And he does it all while keeping his, his wife and daughter alive. And that's great, but we're again, we're left with that last question of, was that the responsible decision? What happens to his child? But we get a moment that answers that because Pepper, his wife, shows up and says, something along the lines of it's okay like we're going to be okay Mm -hmm. and again i'm gonna fucking tear up because that moment (laughs) is so good it is so earned because he spent this whole movie struggling with what is my daughter going to do and pepper absolves him of what he's done pepper shows up and says it's okay that you made this decision i think she literally says you can rest now you can rest now yeah and we finally get the moment where iron man gets to move on he passes away but he passes away knowing that his child's going to be okay mm-hmm. and we get to see that we get to see his funeral we get the rest of those characters it is so moving it's so heartbreaking it's such a good scene and it's so earned and iron man's death i think will be remembered as as a moment in cinema that cannot be forgotten yeah um so Another thing that's important about Endgame is we get closure with every other major character in that movie who we were going to get closure with, right? Like, we don't get closure with Captain Marvel, but that's because Captain Marvel is a brand new character Just introduced who's going to do new movies. Arc, yeah. Endgame is the ending of five characters. It's the ending of Black Widow. It's the ending of Hawkeye. It's the ending of... Well, it might not be the ending of Hawkeye, so I'll leave him out. It's the ending of four characters. Black Widow, Iron Man, um, Tony Stark, and Hulk. Basically, all of those in the original sorry, Avengers movie. Um, Black Widow, Iron Man, Captain America, and Hulk. Sorry, I said Iron Man and Tony Stark. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Captain America gets his happy ending. Um, Black Widow sacrifices herself for the greater good, which is something that she's always felt she needed to do to clear the red in her ledger, which again was set up in Avengers 1. Like, every single one of these character endings is earned. Hulk, the, the entire movie series has struggled to figure out who he is. And in the last movie, we get to see him as his true self, which is Hulk, like the brawn of Hulk, but the brains of Banner. We get to see that happen. We get to see, again, like Black Widow clears the red in her ledger. Captain America gets to go back in time and live his life with the love of his life and finally get the life he missed out on. And Iron Man becomes the hero he always needed to be. Those endings are all earned. We get closure with all of those characters, and our questions are answered. Thor even gets to go back to be the king of Asgard. 
Well, has that um, already ends? He, he well, doesn't get an ending. No, he's not there yet. Because he passes off the king to uh, Valkyrie. That's, oh, that's right. Yep. He gives it to someone else. We're still going to get more with Thor. He and doesn't like, get to, like, redeem himself for yeah. what well, he See, did. the nice thing there is the door for Thor is left open. But it's left open in a way that's that's apparent because he still feels like he has a lot of work to do on his character and we get to see that moment, right? Like we get to see the moment he realizes he needs to move on. This is my Thor door. Oh my god, my Thor door. So so he his arc isn't complete, but that's okay because we know we're getting more movies and more time with him. Endgame didn't need to answer that. But for the characters who it needed to answer, it gave us the conclusion of their arc. And again, it ticks those boxes. It closed the door in a way that it's not coming back from. I guess that remains to be seen. Marvel could theoretically put Tony Stark and Iron Man in another movie, I but I really doubt it. I really doubt it. They've they've intentionally set up other heroes. Um, they've like Captain America has passed on being Captain America to someone else, so we know there's going to be more Captain America, but it is not Steve Rogers who got it his is. ending. Yeah. Um, Black Widow, we are getting another movie with, but it's a prequel. She's staying dead. Um, and so long as they stick with that, this will remain true, but they closed the door and they weren't afraid to do it. They wrapped up their loose ends in a way that felt satisfying and all of the endings were earned. Again, like I pointed out with Iron Man, but it's true for all the other characters, is their endings summarize what we've been watching them struggle with for 10 years. Um, it is a true wrapping up in a way that is, is appropriate to the characters. Now I want to contrast that to Kingdom Hearts 3. And I actually told you this yesterday and I still stand by it. There are problems with how Kingdom Hearts 3 ends, but I truly think that if there wasn't a secret ending, I might actually not be talking about Kingdom Hearts 3 as a bad ending. Um, but let's talk about kind of the, the contrast. So, so the first thing I want to point out is we do actually get closure with almost every other character in Kingdom Hearts 3. The story of Kingdom Hearts 3 is far too complex for me to summarize, so I'm not going to try. Um, <laughs> at least not in this podcast. Um, maybe at some point, like, as a bonus episode, I'll do a deep dive on Kingdom Hearts, but suffice to say that we get answers for every other character. Like, Kyrie gets her ending, Riku gets his ending, Axel or Lee gets his ending, everyone kind of gets their right ending, and we get closure with those characters, except Sora. <sighs> okay, so let's talk <laughs> about the two problems here. So remember what I said, that endings have to feel earned. So for the, the way the ending of Kingdom Hearts 3 works is... Sora stops um, Xehanort from opening Kingdom Hearts and like ending the world and resetting it. He stops that, but Xehanort had killed Kyrie. Kyrie, for those who don't know anything about Kingdom Hearts, is like Sora's love interest over the course of the games. And Sora doesn't want Kyrie to be dead. He saved everyone else, but he didn't save Kyrie. And he basically tells everyone, I'm going to go save Kyrie. And he can do this because he has what's called the power of waking. The power of waking can wake sleeping hearts. Sleeping hearts are basically dead people. Um, he can bring people back from the dead. So there's a problem with this, though. When he says he's going to do that, all of his friends try to stop him. Why? Because he hasn't mastered the power of waking. And he, he knows, and we all know, that he is going to die, or he may die, if he uses the power of waking to save Kyrie, Because... And here's where the first problem comes up. Remember I said endings have to feel earned? Guess when we found out, which you know because you watched me play through this game. Guess when we found out that this power of waking would kill Sora? Literally like an hour ago <laughs> in the game, right? Like you find out that from one line from a character that says to Sora basically like, the further you dive to 
into these sleeping hearts to save them, the more of yourself you lose. Essentially saying, like, you are going to lose yourself to the void if you continue trying to save people. That would be totally a fine way to set up that Sora is going to die, because, again, Kingdom Hearts 3, Sora dies at the end, sort of. Um, that would be a totally great way to set that up if they'd done it 60 hours ago. But they did it an hour before the game ends. How, I mean, literally, how many times throughout the entire series do they mention the fucking power of waking? They actually, so, so there's an entire game like, about obtaining the power of waking, right. and Riku gets it, and it doesn't kill Riku. Right. Like, exactly. this, this hasn't been set up They before. had time to make this a thing. They absolutely did. And I think I really want to compare that, like, like we aren't expecting him to die here. I mean, we are, because we've known it for an hour, but it feels like shoehorned in and cheated, right? Like, we feel we've, cheated here. We've seen Riku. I believe we've seen Riku use it, correct? We've seen Riku we, use it. We, in this very game, see him use it on multiple people, don't we? That's the little yeah, void Yeah, but trip. that's where we get the warning. That's where we get the warning, but, like, again, it's this little void trip where he saves multiple people. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> see, again, if that had happened throughout the game... I would be fine with that explanation. It's just that they shoehorned all that in in the last hour of the game. Exactly. And so, so if we compare that to the Infinity Stones, right? We literally spent 10 years knowing the Infinity Stones were world-ending powerful, like, powerhouses that if anyone used them, they're going to die unless they have something to prevent it. Thanos went on a quest to get a gauntlet that could prevent him from dying when he used it, and it still burned the fuck out of his arm when he snapped his fingers. Mm -hmm. Like, we know these are going to kill Tony when he snaps. And that's set up. This is not set up for Sora. So the final scene that we get, and this is another problem with Kingdom Hearts here, is remember, again, it's, it's still sticking to is it earned or not, um, which is Sora, the final cutscene that we get is all of Sora's friends are on Destiny Islands, which is Sora's homeworld, the and they're very, all very like having a beach party and celebrating, and like it's a happy ending for everyone. Then we go to this tree, and for context, this tree is where Kyrie and Sora like are frequently seen, they frequently chat. It's the very first opening scene uh, of the very first Kingdom Hearts was on this tree with those three friends. Like, there is so much history behind this tree. And the thing that we see is we see Sora holding Kairi's hand. And for a moment, you're like, oh my god, he did it. He saved Kairi. We see everyone. It's going to be so amazing. Happy ending. And then, and again, this is like a two-minute cutscene. At the very end of the cutscene, Sora fades to nothing. Yep. And he's gone. Yep. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. Like, even though... I feel like it was poorly set up and we only we didn't have enough time to sit with the information. If it had ended there, I think that's okay. Like it's okay that he faded away and he died. I'm okay with Sora dying at the end. I would like my, you know, best boy to not die. Or at least a more detailed explanation of how. Yeah. And I think like again, if they changed nothing but the pacing and just put that explanation earlier on in the game, that would be fine, yep. right? And also this is kind of a problem that Kingdom Hearts in general has struggled with which is that its pacing is bad because it never th throws any main story into the Disney world. So you often spend lots of time on stories that don't matter and then very little time on the story that does matter. Mm -hmm. So like that would have been fine if the story had ended there. Remember what I said, not only did the endings have to feel earned and I feel like this ending was almost earned. They were close enough. Like if it had stopped here, I'd give them the benefit of the doubt and I'd say, yeah, it, it was a little rushed, but the ending was fitting. Everyone got their happy ending and Sora sacrificed himself to give it to them. In many ways, it kind of is the ending that Sora needs for that story. 
because Sora didn't have the power to save anyone at the start. He's always been told he's not that powerful and that it's kind of like, like he wants to save everyone, but he can't. And then finally, at the end, he gets to save everyone. In many ways, it would kind of mirror Cole's um, <clears throat> ending in Infamous 2, right? Um, Sora would save everyone, or in Cole's case, Cole saved everyone, but he has to die to do it. I think that ending is okay. Remember, there, there were three parts to this, right? You have to earn it. It has to wrap up loose ends. I already covered that it does wrap up loose ends, so that's good. And they were close enough to earn it that I might forgive them for that. But then finally, you have to close the door and leave it closed. And the secret ending does not leave it closed. The secret ending shows Sora waking up in a world. The world he wakes up in is the world for um, another Square Enix game called The World Ends With You. And he wakes up to play the Reapers game. And in the world that ends with you, the Reapers game is how you come back to life. Yep. We now know from that cutscene that Sora is going to be in the next game and he's going to come back to life through the Reapers game. Everything you just did to me playing this game where I'm crying at the end because Sora died, you completely fucking undo. You undo all of that goodwill because he wakes up. You didn't close the door. It wasn't an ending. And that is, I think, the thing that I've struggled with the most with Kingdom Hearts 3 is in some ways I wish I'd never seen the secret ending. Because if I'd never seen the secret ending, Kingdom Hearts 3 is a chapter of my life closed. It's 10, 15 years at this point of my fandom of Kingdom Hearts coming to an end in a way that feels fitting for Sora's journey, even if it was a little rushed. But the secret ending undoes all that. This was an ending. This Kingdom Hearts 3 was not the end of a story. It was the start of a new one. And yes, I'm excited for more adventures, but it's not an ending. Right. We're left in limbo again. And mm -hmm. God damn it, I waited for Kingdom Hearts 3 for 14 years. You know how bad it feels to still be in limbo after 14 years? It sucks. Yeah. And that's where Kingdom Hearts 3, I think, fails as an ending. Because it's not an ending. It doesn't close the door. It doesn't have the guts to keep it closed. And as much as I love Kingdom Hearts 3, and I still love the Kingdom Hearts franchise, and I'm excited to see where Sora's story goes, there is a part of me that wishes it was the end. It's been a year. <laughs> that's everything. That's everything I wanted to chat about. I don't have some conclusion, because we kind of just... My conclusion was just what we did. We talked about why endings are good and why, to me, Kingdom Hearts 3 wasn't a great ending and Endgame was. Again, I want to come back to that idea. Satisfying endings will stick with you. In many ways, that Kingdom Hearts 3 cutscene is going to stick with me because it's a goddamn good scene and it's beautiful and it's kind of well-directed and well-shot and well-written and like, that's good. And Endgame is going to stick with me far longer because Endgame closed a chapter that I've... It gave me closure for a character that I followed for 10 years and obsessed over for 10 years. And there's something to be said about closure. That's why I'm still inspired by Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Even though this episode was about a lot more than that. Anyway, thanks for listening. Still Inspired By is a Story Thus Far Network podcast. You can email us thoughts about the show, topic ideas, or anything else that you want to discuss at staff at storythusfar.com. If you want to see other things that we've made, you can come check out our website at www.storythusfar.com. You can also find us on Twitter at at storythusfar or on Facebook at facebook.com slash storythusfar. If you'd like to connect with our community, you can find us on Reddit at r slash storythusfar and on Discord, which we'll have links to in the description. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Still Inspired By. Join us next week when Aaron tells us about something green 
frequently broken, but out to save the world. Oh my god, <laughs> that's perfect. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 o